The bankless data and donations are brought to you by Aave. Aave is a borrowing and lending protocol on top of Ethereum, where you can deposit some of your favorite assets in order to borrow other assets from Aave, which is particularly well suited to yield farming. If you don't want to sell your Ether, if you don't want to sell your Wi-Fi, you can deposit them into Aave and borrow stablecoins so you can use them in these various DeFi farms. What's cool about Aave is that it will give you a variable interest rate based on market conditions, but you can also pay a fixed interest rate to help you plan into the future. Check out Aave at Aave.com. If you want a better way to understand your DeFi portfolio, I recommend you go to Zapper.fi and plug in your Ethereum addresses to get a comprehensive report as to your currently owned assets and where they are in Ethereum. If you were around for the 2017 bull market, it was characterized by refreshing Blockfolio over and over and over again. And anytime you would ever make a trade, you would have to manually update your Blockfolio to make sure that your portfolio was accurate. With Zapper, you don't have to do that because Zapper looks on-chain at your Ethereum addresses to see the assets that you have in various DeFi protocols. Not only does it tell you the assets that you own, but it also tells you if they are deposited into Aave, into Compound, what yield farm they're in, your predicted APY, and it'll even let you make investments into DeFi protocols right through their Zapper.fi portal making it really easy to compare and contrast different places as to where you can deploy your, your capital. Check them out at zapper.fi. All right, everyone, welcome to episode 16. This is State of the Nation. We have a jam-packed episode for you today, guys. We have our special guest, Dan Robinson, who's a researcher at Paradigm. He's going to talk about the evil things that lurk in Ethereum's dark forest. We're also gonna talk a little bit about layer two, optimism, big rollout last week on Testnet uh, and touch on the uh, Qcoin hack, few and EMN tokens, Spadina Testnet. Really the goal for Stay the Nation is to update you on what's happening in the DeFi and crypto space and related to the big picture stuff that we talk about in the newsletter and on the podcast and hopefully drop some insights and action items. So David and I do this every Tuesday. We stream it live on YouTube. That may be where you're catching it now. Also comes out on Wednesday in podcast format. If that is your preferred, uh, if that is your preferred way of digesting all of this material, David, how you doing today, man? Just fantastic. The the Ethereum uh, ecosystem continues to move at a mile a minute. So it's actually valuable for me to even do these things because it forces me to keep up with it. Yeah, I know. It's like it's like uh, it definitely takes two of us to mm -hmm. try to keep tabs on like, you know, the, mm -hmm. the 10 to 20% of right. things that are going on that we see. Um, all right, man. So I want to do some announcements really quick first and then ask you the question I always ask. First, let's talk about our NFT podcast. So that came out on uh, Monday. Why should folks tune into that? You know, there's this really good line from uh, from Andrew, and then also I've heard it, you know, expressed elsewhere, where um, you know, currencies and money are the units that we choose to denominate value. 
but it's property that are that the things that we actually value, right? The whole reason behind a currency is to value property, right? And like that's what the NFT side of the equation is, right? So Andrew Steinwald on the podcast had this great line where he said, you know, I, I think that you know the NFT market is going to be a hundred x the size of the DeFi market simply yeah, on the rule crazy of thumb that. that like yeah it was totally insane. But then but then it makes sense when you when you kind of think of like well an NFT can be anything other than money like everything else that's not money is is some sort of could be some sort of nft right and so like there he's very bullish on what he calls the metaverse which is just this world that exists that uh you know is everything else other than money right and so uh, I, I think that's a pretty interesting take and i hope that the metaverse continues to grow in the way that andrew sees it yeah if you're trying to get caught up on nfts trying to figure out if it's the next big thing make sure you catch up or you, you catch that episode. It's like an intro on NFTs, but we also go pretty deep in that one too. It's also badge uh, mint week at, at Bankless. So every month we mint the new member badges from the previous month. And so that's happening on October 1st. David, you also put together a questionnaire, right? So we're, we're trying to level up ourselves mm-hmm. um, and we're going to include that questionnaire in the show notes. But what, what's the purpose of that questionnaire? Why should folks check that out? Right. Yeah. So it's been like two weeks since I've gone bankless full time and I want to make sure that I'm producing what the bankless nation wants. Right. And so like it's a, it's a chance for you to give feedback on like how you value different parts of like the bankless like media, you know, arms. Right. So we we have the podcast, we have the newsletter, we have the YouTube, like which parts of these things do you value the most? What do you want to see expanded on? This is your chance to give the bankless uh, the bankless team feedback as to what you guys want. And so uh, the that, that link will be posted everywhere in the Bankless Discord, in the show notes after this episode is done, uh, in, the, the YouTube, in, the, in the podcast. Uh, so make sure that you take, it's just a very quick two to five minute questionnaire. Uh, and it's, it's how you get the Bankless Media, uh, bank, Bankless Propaganda Division to start to propagandize <laughs> exactly what you want. So take the, take the time and, listen, and fill that out, please. Absolutely. And thanks in advance for everyone who fills that out, uh, fills that out and helps us level up. David, I'm going to begin with the question I ask you every single week on State of the Nation. What is the state of the nation today? The state of the nation is exploring. We are exploring, right? So we all, and this is kind of fundamental to what the bankless nation is. Like we are on the frontier, right? But it feels particularly relevant in the last couple of weeks that we are kind of pushing the fold in, in many different ways. And it's extremely relevant to our guest that we're going to bring on in a second, Dan Robinson, who kind of started off this, uh, this, uh, you know, uh, illustration of like the mempool is like this really unexplored territory, right? And now there seems to be a bunch of effort in trying to illuminate the mempool. Also, we are on our last dress rehearsal of uh, the testnet for Ethereum 2.0. And so that we're kind of pushing the fold in, in that domain. And then there's a, a lot of conversations on, on Twitter that are also exploring new social domains as well. So lots of exploring lately, lots of, lots of expanding the reach. Uh, and so we are exploring. All right. Well, let's let's start with that. Let's bring on Dan Robinson, who is a researcher at Paradigm. We're going to talk about the dark forest. You mentioned some concepts there, David, that we want to define for our watchers and our listeners, like the mempool. Um, Dan, are you there? It's great to have you on State of the Nation, my friend. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, you guys have one of the you know, most interesting, I think, crypto native funds in the space at Paradigm. And I know you're a researcher in the space and you guys have been an asset to, to many of the protocol designs. 
uh, and it, you know many of the DeFi protocols that have come out. Um, and I, I think the the post that you put out called Ethereum is a dark forest was another way that you and Paradigm are giving back to the community. It starts with this line, which I love. It says, this is a horror story. <laughs> what you're about to write and, and describe in Ethereum being a dark forest is a little. So I was glad that it did where I think a lot of people were than just the Ethereum smart contract state. That. So we're in Ethereum, but what the heck is the Ethereum mempool? So the mempool is the set of transactions that have been submitted to the network and propagated to miners and, and other uh, full nodes on the network, but haven't yet been confirmed or included in a block. So, okay, so if I'm like on MetaMask and I submit a transaction, I want to buy something on Uniswap, right? And I put my gas fee. There's this period of time where if I go in Etherscan, look up that transaction, it just says you know, transaction pending, essentially. So when the transaction is pending, when a miner hasn't you know, picked it up and actually vol uh, validated it and committed it to a block, it's sitting in the mempool. Is that right? Yep. And this is a very dangerous time for your transaction because it's public. Anybody can see it and people can submit transactions that come after it or that come before it. Um, but there's no guarantee that it will be included, that it, how it will execute. Um, and so people can basically mess with your transaction while it's visible in this mempool but hasn't yet been confirmed. Wow. Okay. So who is looking at this, this mempool? So you said it's visible, but um, I don't see a place necessarily, or I haven't seen it on um, Etherscan, for example. Uh, well, there's no like aggregated place for me to see. So who's looking at the, the mempool and where is that visible? Yeah. So um, if you're running an Ethereum full node, then your node has a mempool. Um, if you're running a miner, then there's a mempool, which is basically the, the block template that you're trying to build. There are some tools uh, that are being developed for mempool visibility um, that are more accessible for anyone. So like Block Native is an example, which just came out with a mempool explorer. Um, but I think usually this mempool is, is uh, you know, it's, stuff happens very fast in the mempool. So it's mostly bots reading this. So basically someone's hooked into their Ethereum full node, is watching transactions come in as, and is... Uh, creating transactions programmatically in response to that. Okay, so everyone that runs a node has their own version of the mempool. And what the mempool does is it broadcasts transactions out to the rest of the world. And the reason why you called your article Ethereum is a dark forest is because like, you know, you in order to get your transaction into Ethereum, you need to broadcast but then you are also broadcasting what we are calling your minor extractable value, right? You're broadcasting, therefore, the arbitrage opportunity that you're willing to commit to in so far that you are ready to commit to that transaction being included. Uh, so can you first, can you elaborate on that? And if you wanted to just spin it in, in using different words, but then also I want to get to like, okay, who are these monsters that are listening to our broadcasting our arbitrage? Like wh who are these people? So there's, uh, there's a certain kind of specialized arbitrage um, or front running that happens that is kind of analogous to the front running that's described in like the Flash Boys book um, and, uh, and happens in traditional finance, which is whenever there's, there's a trade, you're broadcasting your intention to buy it at up to some particular limit price, say a trade on Uniswap. Um, somebody can potentially buy ahead of you, um, have your trade move the market and execute at a bad price and then trade after, after that. So that's something that can happen. And there are a lot of bots that specialize in this kind of uh, arbitrage. And that's almost, I think that's, it's, it's fairly well known, although I think a lot of people probably underestimate how sophisticated these bots can be and how uh, intense the race can be that happens when one of these transactions goes in the mempool. There was actually a post that came out sometime after this one um, 
someone uh, just just dug in on an example of this kind of arbitrage that happened, I think, in the pickle token um, when there was a big trade on on pickle. Uh, there's a uh, the scarier kind of what I talk about in this post, um, at least scarier to me, although it's it's only applicable in a, in a subset of, uh, of cases of which this was this was one is this thing that we, that we call generalized front runners. So the reason we were worried about generalized front runners when we were writing this post is the context of this post is that I realized that there was some money that somebody had accidentally sent into a Uniswap contract that could be retrieved by anybody. Anybody could just make a call to the Uniswap contract and get this money um, out, and it was about twelve thousand dollars worth. Um, and when you're in a scenario where anybody can pick up money, which is often the case, especially with uh, with hacks, where like the idea of a hack of a Ethereum smart contract hack is that like anybody can get it, not just the owner, um, then you have to worry about these generalized front runners. So what the generalized front runners do is, uh, you know, the, the specialized ones just like look for Uniswap trades and then apply this particular formula to it. The generalized ones are, are much simpler in some ways. They just run your transaction, see what it does, test programmatically whether if they did that, if they did exactly what your transaction or one of its internal calls did, possibly mutating some of the arguments to like replace an address with their own address, um, would that cause them to, to realize a profit? And they don't have to know anything about how the contracts work, just sort of basically run this it's deterministic and just see what would happen if they, if they did this. And if they see this, then, um, then they, they front run your transaction with something that makes that internal call. So then all just, this happens within a block time, right? All this has to, yes, um, has to happen basically immediately um, mm -hmm. before, before your transaction gets included. Um, so, and yeah, and yeah, and it does. <laughs> so so there's, a, there's thousands of different ways that like people can leverage arbitrage, right? And so like smart traders, uh, sophisticated investors, like they're, they're, they're incentivized to go out and find this arbitrage. But then the miner when they hear the broadcasted transaction, they just listen to the, listen to the transaction and, and they're like, well, did this person just find arbitrage? Let me, buy, let me find out by replacing all the receiving addresses and, and with my addresses. And then I'll, and I'll, before I broadcast or include my own transaction, I'll just replace my address, their address with mine. And if I make money, then I will broadcast that transaction with more gas. Right. And so they're letting the laborers labor to find out where the arbitrage is on Ethereum. And then they're just swapping out the, their address uh, into their place so they, they could access that arbitrage instead. Right. That's, that's right. Currently, it's not miners, or at least we're not aware of any miners that are actually doing this at a sophisticated level. It's mostly other participants in the, um, in the mempool who, uh, who are running basically bots that do this and submit transactions. Um, and as a result of it not being miners, there is some competition, mm -hmm. even for a particular piece of MEV, of MEV, there's often a bunch of bots that try to right. uh, have to race each other for it. Um, but, uh, but yeah, that, 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 that's exactly right. And uh, it's true that this, this kind of generalized front running vulnerable case happens with hacks. It also happens with arbitrage when it's, when it's like a pure arbitrage. It's just like, it's just like, for example, something with a flash loan mm -hmm. where, uh, you know, you basically just make, just make this call and you don't have to have any kind of uh, permissions. You don't have to have any, any even assets starting out. Um, you're just kind of like uh, uh, picking up this free money that's on the street. Mm -hmm. So what is the, the dark forest analogy, like kind of the, the I guess the sci-fi analogy mm -hmm. that here, Dan? Yeah, so one of my favorite sci-fi book series, um, the, the Three Body Problem, which was translated from Chinese, um, is uh, it's about 
Well, I think I don't want to spoil the the books or the um, or especially the, even the co the concept of the dark forest, which is a, it's a fairly philosophical spoiler um, to give. But it's a, the book is a philosophical mystery, so I don't want to I don't want to spoil it too much. Um, but the book introduces this concept of a dark forest where um, you're in an environment where there are extraordinarily advanced predators, um, and the only thing that's keeping you alive is that they can't see you, and so to publicly identify somebody else is as good as essentially destroying them. And so uh, in, this, in this environment, basically, you, uh, the only way to be secure is if nobody, is if nobody can see you. And the, the reason that this was a problem for us is that in order to pick up this free money that was sitting there on Ethereum in this Uniswap contract, um, we would have to make it visible. We have to mm -hmm. submit a transaction that, that uh, alerted everybody to it. And then we just, we just sort of knew that there would be, that, that people would be watching and potentially would, would steal it. I was lucky that when we, when we encountered this scenario that I'd actually heard about these generalized frontrunners from Phil Dion, um, who studied this and wrote the, wrote the Flash Boys 2.0 paper. Um, and I'd never actually, you know, I'd never seen one of these uh, bots before, but we sort of knew they existed from the effects that they have had. So did you see them in practice when you were trying to claim that 12K, right? So I, I remember Phil's Flash Boys paper and it, it very much seemed like, okay, in the distant future, we're going to have to worry about that, right? But are you, you saying you saw it in practice here? Yeah, so when we, when we encountered this scenario, basically we wanted to be really careful because I'd heard about these things and we would only get one shot at this. So I called in some, some great smart contract security researchers like Sam Sun um, and Scott Bigelow. Uh, who, help, who helped out with basically designing an obfuscation plan for this. And so, you know, I, I didn't want to just directly call the Uniswap contract. That would make it really obvious. Um, so instead, we created a contract, actually created a system of two contracts, um, one of which had to be called by one transaction and would activate the other. And then we created another transaction to call the second one and would only work once it had been activated. And the idea of this was just to kind of make it somewhat more computationally difficult for the attackers to, to detect what was going on actually and what was going to happen in the second transaction until it was too late. Um, unfortunately, and you know, like while we were doing this, it feels kind of, you feel kind of silly um, because you're like sneaking around uh, to hide from, from this kind of monster that you don't even, uh, you've, never, you've never seen and aren't really sure exists. And so, whereas we were also on a time, under some time pressure because, because of the way that the, the uh, the contract was set up. Um, anyone could accidentally even uh, pick up this money by just by just making a making a with with liquidity a burn call to the to the Uniswap pool. So we were we were on a tight time frame. Um, unfortunately, uh, what happened was we actually we did get front run. So our transaction when when we tried to do this obfuscated scheme, um, the second transaction got uh, immediately front run. And this was money that had been on the chain for eight hours, but. Basically, as soon as we submitted this transaction, I was going to go pick it up. Somebody else sniped it. Wow. So one of the monsters in the dark forest basically identified the, the free money, went and mm -hmm. front ran you and stole it before your transaction could get, could get through. Yep. So th this kind of reminds me of that story where um, maybe it was Darwin. Darwin, like... Uh, hypothesize the existence of a very particular kind of bird that had a very, very long beak because 
in order for that this one particular flower on this one particular uh, you know place place of land in order for that flower to even be able to exist it would need a bird to pollinate it that had a very long beak and he didn't know that the bird existed but because of the conditions set by the environment he kind of just was able to assume that this bird would exist and so Dan you were kind of doing that same thing it's like well there's these set of conditions and therefore I'm hypothesizing that this monster is going to be there ready to snag it up regardless of whether I know that that monster is there right that's right and in this case you know we 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 had some evidence we'd, we'd heard about people who had encountered a monster like this before but in theory from first principles mm-hmm. you could figure out like this would this would be a risk and in fact when trying to figure out what kind of obfuscation tactics would work on it we had to we had to basically reason about what would what would could someone build mm-hmm. um, or what would be profit what would be worth the trouble to build um yeah so dan so what like why does this matter like what's why why do we need to pay attention to this why isn't this just like okay so like some people more sophisticated people can like have you know p- uh, privileged positions that arbitrage versus others like why is this a big deal so i think the um you know, right now there's sort of a limited set of cases where this particular kind of uh, generalized front running is, is dangerous. It's mostly bad for white hat hackers. Um, that's like, that's maybe the people who deal with it, deal with it the most. Um, but there was, there was a general worry about MEV extraction, which is uh, potentially the amount of minor extractable value that could come from um, submitting, reordering, censoring transactions uh, within a block or possibly across, across a number of blocks is potentially much greater than, especially in a complex chain like Ethereum, much greater than the amount that you can get from transaction fees or from block reward. And if you have a, a blockchain where there's, there's that much of a prize in terms of minor extractable value, um, potentially it, it, miners are going to have to uh, extract it or be outcompeted by miners that do. And some of this, I mean, you know, honestly, the, the kind of what we saw here was, was, wasn't quite benign. Um, but it wasn't even as dangerous as some of the others that you could imagine would be like censoring payment channel uh, closures, for example. There's all kinds of evil stuff that miners could get up to. They don't right now because it is, you know, it's, it's kind of difficult to, and a lot of them are, are at least to some extent altruistic, but potentially they could be outcompeted by ones that do. Right. Okay, so what so- that means basically is that we lose the credible neutrality of transactions on Ethereum, right? So they're like it's no longer sort of a fair bidding process of kind of just simple gas fees. There's this whole class of monsters in the dark forest that can just front run you and outbid you. So it no longer becomes fair. There's a class system. It gets even more unfair once miners are the ones actually doing this, um, especially if they're extracting some of the more, the more malignant kinds of MEV. Um, one interesting thing is miners being unfair was actually the solution that, that Samsung uh, recently found to the dark forest problem, um, which happened when uh, last week when he, uh, or a couple of weeks ago when he found a, a $10 million vulnerability in a contract that could potentially be called by anybody. Mm-hmm. Um, really up in the, the up way in the that, stakes. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. So this is, this is, yeah, it was about a thousand times as, as uh, much at stake as, as when Georges and I were dealing with it, with our contract. Um, and the solution that they found was to bring in uh, a minor, a mining pool, spark pool, to basically include their transaction without propagating it to other miners. Mm-hmm. And so why, wow. so, so the theory is though that, you know, Sparkpool should, could do that just as like a service, but also Sparkpool could then take that same transaction 
and do the same thing that we've been talking about where they redirect the funds to their own pool, right? As rationally incentivized actors, that might be, and maybe, maybe spark pool are a bunch of good guys, but like all the other mining pools in Ethereum don't have to be right. That's right. And, and potentially whichever mining pool is most malignant and most able to extract uh, MEV will mm-hmm. outcompete the others because it can, it can afford to spend more on hash. Right. So this right, is a so classic, classic Moloch dilemma, right? Where like wh- right. whoever defects is the one that wins more money. And so therefore everyone has to defect. Right. And so like, maybe, maybe this was like the one time where Sparkpool would do this, but as soon as all these other miners are seeing this happen, like, well, Sparkpool can't afford to not do it. Right. Or else they'll go out of business. And so miners, the, the, the worry here is that miners are going to take a more active a direct role in ordering transactions because it it means it means the world to their bottom line. So in order to stay you know afloat as a company, they have to do this. Yeah, that, that's right. And it, you know, I, I think it, it may well we may well be some ways away from that really un, unfortunate state where the miners are are stuck in this yeah in this in this Moloch scenario where they have to um, do this to compete. Um, generally, miners in both Bitcoin and Ethereum have acted like somewhat long-term or, or um, sort of rationally altruistic parties. Um, but I think it, it potentially could be only a matter of time before, before the barriers to entry on this get, get uh, lowered. So Dan, is it also the case that there's kind of an arms race going on here in the mempool, in the dark forest between people who want their transactions to remain hidden and those, I guess, predators that are trying to seek out those transactions and front run them. So you mentioned um, Block Native, who just came out with, and we're showing it here on the screen, a, a mempool explorer, which is the first time I've seen this. Uh, and it's a whole suite of API services that allows you to just basically see transactions in the mempool and kind of program your own robots, right, in the mempool. And so... Um, uh, before this, we, we put in a, um, a Uniswap contract address. This is a liquidity pool for an ETH DAI pair, basically. And we can see all of the transactions that are in the mempool that are pending, that are like just rolling through, right? So you can see this one. This is a Tether USD one. You can see um, the exact amount of, of gas that is being proposed here, right? Like the whole dark forest is visible to us in a block explorer. So does this just create this entire arms race? Well, I think um, arguably any technology that that is available to like ordinary users um, or makes it easier to basically see in the dark forest is potentially just leveling the play, playing field uh, for this. So that, that could be positive. On the other hand, it's also to some extent accelerating this, this inevitable future where, where everybody has the tools to do this. And so basically, um, uh, MEV, gets, I don't know, overfarmed, I guess would be the term, um, or potentially captured captured by miners. Okay, so the the end state of this, what we're worried about is that you know people that are the the bots that are front running these arbitrage opportunities, eventually that software and that logic gets integrated into miners, right? And what this really illustrates is like while Bitcoin and Ethereum are trying to push control from the center out to the edges. At any one particular block, there's actually just one person that controls what a block looks like, right? For so like, while the whole entire system over many, many, many blocks is completely leaderless, every single individual block has one single individual leader, right? They're the ones that mines the block and gets to propose it. And proof of stake actually doesn't even fix this, right? It actually just kind of formalizes it and it just like allows people to take turns 
formalizing blocks, right? And so the, the, what we're really starting to worry about is that the minor extractable value for other blocks can be really significant, which contributes to chain insecurity. Can you, can you comment on that? I'm sorry, could you repeat the question? So yeah, so sen since uh, each individual block, there's one specific person that is able to order transactions based on you know, the activity for it that's included in one specific block, that can make one block more valuable than the next block, right? And so uh, the minor extractable value, all the value that you know, all the arbitrage bots could have happened goes to the minor for one block. And that could be a lot of money if there's a lot of arbitrage in just this one block, right? And that makes the security of Ethereum for the next few blocks up in the air, right? Because there's a lot of opportunity to go back and mine that one particular block. Can you kind of talk about like what this problem right. looks like at maturity when it comes to uh, chain consensus? Yep, so there's actually a paper that um, I think may even predate Ethereum called On the Instability of Bitcoin um, and the Absence of the Block Reward. And that, that talks about this problem in Bitcoin um, where the only minor extractable value, at least the only one that's, that's talked about is just the transaction fees. And the issue is that if you have transactions with really big fees, potentially it's worth it for the next miner to reorder your block instead of, um, uh, instead of lending gem. And that causes, that causes a, um, uh, a lot of rollbacks in an unstable chain. Um, on Ethereum, potentially the, the problem is worse because yeah, there's so much uh, MEV that you can get. And when you can do it across multiple blocks, you have what's called a time banded attacks, which could potentially be even more, even more serious. Um, so one, it's, it's not exactly a solution to this problem. But I do think the IP 1559, um, potentially improves this situation by basically socializing some of the, some of the, uh, transaction costs and in effect, spreading them out over a lot of blocks by saying like, we're going to keep the block reward. Um, we're just going to burn some of the transaction fees. Um, so ultimately like the value of those transaction fees end up in the block reward basically. Yeah, so this is kind of the uh, a grim picture, I guess. We've we've painted a little bit like there is this um, whole kind of arms race in the dark forest, and you know there could be a future state where um, transactions there's multiple uh, parties, and some parties have privilege over transactions versus versus others, particularly um, those with capital, those with wealth. Um, is it all grim, Dan, or like is there some light at the end of the tunnel here? Uh, how do we how do we solve this? So I think there's, um, there are, I think there are a few possible solutions. Um, so one is uh, you could imagine technologically just figuring out a way to blind transactions. Um, uh, and this would, would either have to be done at the layer one um, level or, um, uh, or potentially you know, within, within some particular layer two system, um, which would be have some way that um, transactions get ordered before the miner knows what uh, is actually included in them. Um, and I think there's, there's a lot of potential questions about that kind of solution, um, a lot of arms race that could happen there, but um, there's at least potentially some promise of just like a technical solution um, that, uh, that kind of removes this problem. And you can, you can imagine an ecosystem that implements this kind of, of solution out competing one that doesn't, hmm. because ultimately this really predatory environment, no one's actually gonna wanna use it. People, if, and, and as a result, um, uh, you know, like the, the, the predators won't have anything, there won't be any prey. So they'll, they'll just like overfish the uh, <laughs> environment. Um, I think another possibility, and this is one where optimism, which, which uh, full disclosure paradigm is, is invested in optimism, um, has been thinking about, which is uh, some MEV is, is inevitable. Um, you, could, it's, you could call it benign. 
um, MEV, and that's like the first trade on Uniswap in a block, for example. Um, and then some other kinds potentially more controversial, but you could imagine a system where um, a DAO basically captures all the MEV. This actually is also been proposed by KeeperDAO. We have basically a, a uh, benevolent um, uh, cartel that effectively captures the, the MEV, can redirect it toward other users, can give it back to, back to users, can potentially prevent some of the worst kinds of MEV from being, um, from being extracted. And this, this, is, this is sort of the escape from Moloch where you have, if you have like a single Leviathan that's, that's powerful enough not to be subject to the same incentives. Very cool. Dan, um, we've, we've got to pause for a quick sponsor break to, to, to tell folks about our sponsors, but do you have a few minutes to talk a little bit more about that, specifically Layer 2 and Optimism when we come back? Yeah, I'd be happy to. Awesome. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, we want to tell you a bit more about our fantastic sponsors. Make sure you support these sponsors, guys. They make Bankless and State of the Nation possible. The Bankless State of the Nations are also brought to you by Monolith. Monolith is a really important tool to help you go bankless, but still let you buy your groceries at your local grocery store. Monolith will ship you a very sexy Visa card that you can use wherever Visa is accepted, which is basically the whole world. But instead of using the dollars in your bank account, it uses the die in your Monolith smart contract wallet. Something brand new out of Monolith is the ability to add funds directly to your Monolith wallet without having to go through a centralized exchange like Coinbase or Binance or whatever. Getting your fiat money directly into Ethereum straight through Monolith is a really powerful tool to remove the influence of centralized intermediaries in this world. Now with Monolith, you can buy DAI straight into your Monolith wallet with a 0% fee, which is absolutely insane. So check them out at monolith.xyz and get your Monolith Visa card today. You know that random string of characters that you have to pass to your friends and family to show them what your Ethereum address is? and they just don't get it? Unstoppable Domains fixes that problem. With Unstoppable Domains, you get a human readable name so you can tell them to, instead of paying you at 0x1743q4, you can just tell them, hey, pay me at davidhoffman.xyz or davidhoffman.zil. You don't have to ever worry about sending the wrong address because it's human readable. And this works for not just Ethereum, but for Bitcoin, for Litecoin, for any blockchain that works with unstoppable domains. You can even tell Bitcoiners to send you Bitcoin to davidhoffman.eth. They even allow you to set up uncensorable websites that are always accessible, even if the Chinese nation state doesn't want them to be. Check them out at unstoppabledomains.com. All right. Uh, Dan Robinson is still here. And we're going to be talking about, we want to talk about something else that is exciting that is happening on uh, in in the Ethereum and, and DeFi landscape. So if that first segment got you a little bit down, <laughs> here's some optimism for you. Um, and Optimism published post this week. They are a layer two scaling solution that kind of contrasts the you know this is a horror story. Ethereum is dark forest. The, the, it's called light at the end of the tunnel. All right. And so for a very long time, the context here is of course. Um, Ethereum has had a uh, scaling challenge, and not just Ethereum, other blockchains have as well. And uh, for a very long time, the holy grail to that challenge has been some form of a layer two um, Ethereum environment where you can run the Ethereum virtual machine and all of the smart contracts and MetaMask and infrastructure that you're running on the Ethereum mainnet can run in this uh, layer two, more scalable solution. And it feels like finally we might be making some breakthroughs here. 
Uh, Dan, can you tell us a little bit about Optimism, what it is, and uh, what they just launched? Yeah, so um, again, just to repeat the disclosure, uh, Paradigm's invested in Optimism. Um, uh, and generally here, I'm speaking on uh, my, about my own views and not those of the, we're not representing the, the, the fund um, or, or the company Optimism. Um, but uh, what Optimism uh, has built and is continuing to build is a layer two scaling solution for Ethereum that combines two sort of innovations. One of them is this optimistic rollup, um, which reduces the uh, execution costs of running smart contracts on chain within this within the whole EVM environment um, by optimistically saying, let's assume that this that this worked and that the that when this was submitted, uh, the state was the state that they submitted was valid um, until challenged. Um, and then there's a, there's a basically a, a, a challenge response protocol um, for actually saying no, this was an invalid state transition. Otherwise, you just have to show the blocks on the Ethereum chain and you just say what uh, what they do, um, what the resulting state from them is. And after some period of time, that state is finalized and it's possible to, to for example, exit back onto the um, onto layer one. Um, so that reduces, you know, right now the um, the most serious scaling challenges and, and costs on Ethereum are involved the state storage opcodes. Um, actually, just having like data um, in the in the block is relatively cheap, um, and that scales maybe bandwidth potentially scales a little better than this uh, sequential computation and state accesses. So um, that's a way to relieve some of the of the of the um, uh, burden of um, these of these complex uh, calculations on layer one by saying layer one just has to see the uh, the blob of data that represents the block and um, what someone asserts to be the state that results from it. Um, the other uh, innovation that, that Optimism um, is, include, is including in this is having a sequencer. Um, and this is the one that's, that most directly relates to MEV. So this, and this is, this is orthogonal to, um, to the optimistic rollup. You could have this on a ZK rollup, you could have this even without a, without a rollup at all. Um, this, it's, it's, this gives priority um, in terms of transaction ordering to a particular um, entity. So by basically giving the sequencer a monopoly um, in the in the short run, there's there's I think a, maybe a ten minute period um, on the ordering of transactions. You eliminate this arms race to get the to get your transaction included. So as long as that party is is honest, they can potentially. Um, just confirm your transactions and tell you, so this, this reduces latency, um, and they can just not front run your transactions and, and therefore um, uh, mitigate front running. Does that mean, Dan, we're trusting that entity though? So in the, in the short run, yes, um, for, for particularly uh, MEV extraction, although um, arguably what it falls back to uh, in the case of a dishonest sequencer is not that different from um, the Ethereum L1 assumptions, or at least possibly the, the inevitable uh, result of them. Um, in the long run, I think the, uh, and this, you know, this is, I can't speak that much to optimism's long uh, term roadmap, but the idea is there should be, um, there should be a governance, a governance mechanism that ensures that the sequencer can't just uh, uh, extract all the, all the value on this. Now, uh, even, even without that kind of governance though, you can always exit it's always safe to exit the, the rollup and potentially go back to the main chain. Um, so a rational sequencer uh, may not want to, uh, to extract uh, that MEV. And this is different from a rational miner who might have no other choice 
um, because they're in this in this Moloch situation. The sequencer is, is somewhat more aligned with the long-term goal of keeping everybody on the roll-up and therefore not interfering with the way they use it. It always feels like with these coordination tools, we're like squeezing the balloon, right? Like a little bit, right? Where we're trying to like get the MEV problem somewhere else. We come up with a solution to kind of solve it for a while, but we're squeezing the balloon and it, it starts to seep in in other places. So it just does feel like this perpetual arms race. Um, I want to talk, Dan, really quick, and we can come back to MEV in a second, but just about the benefits of um, optimism. And I think Hayden Adams, uh, who is the founder of Uniswap, kind of, kind of put it well, how big this potentially could be to have an Ethereum native EVM running L2. So you get security from Ethereum, right? So um, this is not like a side chain. This is not like a, an exchange. You are actually imbuing the L2 with Ethereum uh, security. You have the scalability benefits. Um, you don't have the data availability issues that are present in other layer two solutions like Plasma, notoriously. Um, you've got interoperability with other dApps on the layer two. So you preserve, at least within layer two, this composability, this money Lego type nature. And it works with Ethereum infrastructure. So people don't have to rewrite what they've already created. So, so that means like, um, you know, MetaMask can work more natively out of the box. Um, Uniswap and synthetics are much easier to port. Um, and he lists these other benefits as well. Do you think Hayden is kind of overblowing some of these benefits or do you think this is that big of a deal, Dan? I think in the long run, these, are, these all are exactly um, what makes us so excited about, about optimism. Um, I think you know, there, there are costs um, and trade-offs that come with, with using optimistic rollup as a, as a solution rather than, um, than something else. And those include, there's, there's, a, there's a withdrawal delayed to the main chain um, uh, to allow this fraud uh, uh, proof process to happen. And- How long? Um, uh, so I, I, I'm not actually sure where they've, where they've landed. I, I believe it may, be, it may be one week, uh, but don't quote me on that. Um, uh, but it, it's, 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 you know, it's configurable and it really depends on the security assumptions of the, sure. the rollup. Um, the, uh, the other, the other one is you're limited ultimately by the, uh, data availability, um, uh, throughput of the main chain. But what, what is really exciting about this is that, you know, if there if two, there's been a lot of progress on it. Um, but some parts are still really far off. But one thing they're, they're pretty sure they know how to do is massive scaling of data availability, uh, throughput through, through phase one, uh, shard chains. And so if you combine uh, ETH2's ability to, to like basically have a, have a ton of data availability proofs um, without, without having to worry about execution. And then uh, the optimistic rollup approach of um, all, you need to, all you need to prove is data availability and then execution is proved with this, with this interactive process. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of great synergy there. And that's one of the reasons we're really excited about is we think the, the problems, like some of the, the challenges of optimism uh, is, are exactly the ones that we think are, um, there's, there's been serious pro progress being made um, at the scaling layer. Well, one thing I don't think that the average person uh, is uh, quote unquote pricing into like the future of Ethereum is like the compounding nature of all of these solutions, right? And so one solution, one domain can really complement another solution in another domain. And while any, maybe any one particular solution wouldn't have worked in, in silo, uh, when you kind of 
combine all of them together, you get something like that that's greater than the sum of each individual parts. Uh, so there, there seems to be a lot of you know, optimism about optimism, which makes me optimistic. So uh, that, um, I'm cool. And then, so thank you, Dan, for, for helping. I know, I know um, uh, the optimism team has been very uh, complimentary, complimentary, is that a word? Uh, about paradigms uh, support of them. And so you know, thank you for being good stewards of, of the ecosystem. And, and I do want to bring this all the way back to MEV, right, which is kind of, we started this conversation on, you know, Ethereum is this dark forest with a, these bunch of monsters that are coming to eat your arbitrage, right? And, you know, this, the, the worst case scenario for this is that, you know, this just is a re-centralization of power and control over these supposedly decentralized systems, right? And so uh, you, you mentioned like the optimism has this sequencer that uh, allows the, the, what is so incredibly valuable, which is the role of sequencing transactions to be formalized, right? And I think in the social contract of optimism is that the formalization of these, these sequencers allows the users to have say as to where they still get some amount of their value extracted because that's what sequencing does, but they at least now have some say in where this value goes. Can you talk about that component? Uh, I'll expand on that component of optimism a little bit more. Yeah, so I think it's really important um, and part of what optimism is doing is to um, not build too much of a, of a moat or barrier uh, to people running their own optimisms, uh, optimistic rollups or people that are running other ones. So there's some competition at the at basically the rollup level um, that will incentivize a sequencer to basically be a, be a, a good sequencer. Um, and so, uh, you know, that, that's, that I think uh, that's very important because you don't want sort of capture of this by, by something um, that could, could either, yeah, censor, censor transactions um, or, or extract uh, malignant MEB. Um, but it, it can be valuable to have, um, to basically delegate the ability to sequence your transactions to this, to this uh, party in order to get all the benefits that we talked about of avoiding the MEV arms race. So one thing that concerns me is that like this, while it's good that we are able to harness the power of MEV and direct it, it kind of returns us to a very age old problem of governance, right? Like, and it seems to be that like with optimism and the sequencer, like they are creating this oil well, right? This oil spigot that's coming out of the ground. And also there's only one of these things, right? And so all of a sudden, like the value of being able to capture and coordinate the value coming out of this oil well out of the ground is becomes politically very strong, right? It becomes a very, very powerful force. And, you know, humans, as, as, as you know, as coordinated as we can be, we tend to be, we tend to succumb to things like governance, right? Like when there's a money printer, like there is a lot of uh, incentive to try and capture it, right? So why, and, and the optimism team seems to be, again, optimistic that they have overcome this governance issues. Do you know why they're so optimistic about like this not being a problem? Well, I can only speak for myself, but I think, Part of it is what I was saying before about competition, um, which ultimately, um, at least in my view, markets are often are better, often better coordination mechanism um, than governance. And there's always this this exit right um, from a from a roll up if uh, if the sequencer is, is malicious, and that's that's independent of what the of what kind of the voice process is for for choosing um, the sequencer and, and who who governs that. Um, that said, again, I think it, it it partly may just may just depend on um, yeah, on, on solving some of these problems with DAOs. And I think uh, it is kind of cool how the DeFi uh, revolution um, has, has 
I think really pushed DAOs forward because now there's something very valuable to govern. Um, there's a lot at stake here um, with a lot of these DeFi protocols and with something like Optimism. And I think we're gonna find that the, there's pressure now to, to basically, yeah, to, to try to develop better governance mechanisms. I don't think we're there yet. Right. So, so the Gitcoin model is, uh, you know, donations and funding from the market, right? And so, you know, no one, if you go to Gitcoin, you donate your money and then you get quadratically matched. And so according to the free market, only good grants get funded because the free market tends to fund those. And that seems to be like the same kind of thought process with like sequencers. Maybe, maybe there's a, a, a sequencer which is donating toward like towards like money laundering or human trafficking. And so people like opt out of that sequencer for something that, you know, is, is a sequencer that promises to send money towards you know covid research or cancer research or something like that is that is that the kind of the idea um yeah yeah so i think that and or just you know if, if a roll-up is a bad user experience because there's a lot of MEV on it um mm -hmm. then people can people can switch off of it sure sure dan uh this has been fantastic thanks so much for uh, telling us about optimism so for for folks that um, are just kind of prolifer uh, just just viewing this from time to time. Optimism now is in testnet, so uh, Synthetics has gone live with a testnet version of it. There's going to be an incentivized testnet, so we'll be monitoring how that progresses. One of the most exciting things I think about Optimism is with Layer Two, you're not just solving a technology problem and a security problem, you're solving a coordination problem, mm -hmm. and to see um, at least you know Chainlink, Synthetics. Uniswap sort of step up and say, hey, we're going to do this together is um, is very encouraging, <laughs> I think, for the, the layer two and Ethereum scalability space. Uh, Dan, thanks so much for spending time with the Bankless Nation. We really appreciate it. Uh, we will be looking at your work in the future as well as you explore how to um, stymie and stifle the monsters in the dark forest. <laughs> thanks so much for having me on. Cheers. Thanks, Dan. All right. Excellent. All right, guys. Uh, wow. Um, there's a lot there, David. I mean, like I am um, blown away when I think about um, optimism and when I think about kind of the dark forest and the MEV, all the implications there. We've got a podcast coming up that's going to get into some of this Right. Do you want to tease that a little bit? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I feel really, really strongly about this too. So like, you know, I, I've been working my uh, quote unquote, well, let's go ahead and say it. I've been working my ass off ever since like 20, 2018, <laughs> learning, learning how to produce content, like learning how to write, learning how to write in ways that, uh, that people resonate with and then learning how to make, make podcasts. Right. And so now I'm pretty good at it. And so, so now we, you and me, Ryan created, created this platform that a lot of people listen to. And now I'm now we're going to try and do something a little bit more direct, a little bit more intentful, right? And that is uh, injecting the thought of and process of Moloch into people's brains at the peak of the bull market rather than at the bottom of the bear market, right? And so we're bringing on Amin Soleimani and Kevin Owaki, two guys who are are basically, if you wanted to say uh, sum up their job in a very simple sentence, it's they're each trying to slay Moloch in their own particular way, right? And so maybe you guys are, are kind of just tuning into what Moloch is. Uh, well, that's A, what the podcast is going to be about. Um, and, and in order to prepare for that podcast, you can uh, read a recent Market Monday that I wrote, but then also read the Meditations on Moloch blog. 
basically Moloch is the god of human coordination failure, right? And it's, it's basically the reason why we can't have nice things. And a really good example for this that maybe a lot of people can resonate with is like when we were uh, delegating, uh, people, when people were delegating yams in order to save yams, right? They were foregoing uh, the opportunity of uh, earning more yams from the yam staking system. So other, many, many people withdrew their yams to delegate yams to save yams but then that made it more lucrative for other people to defect from that in order to earn more yams, right? And so there, for every, any time there's a human coordination success, there's incentive to defect, right? And that's the God of Moloch. And we're going to talk about this concept with Amin and, and Kevin. And I truly believe that like Ethereum is this platform for learning how to slay Moloch, right? Learning how to coordinate with each other. And anytime there's like a new yield farm, anytime there's a new project like Ethereum 2.0 itself, these are all coordination mechanisms that are tools and infrastructure for humans to coordinate more effectively, which is like the grand problem of humanity, right? Like it's a big deal. And so now that we've, we've, uh, you and me, Ryan have, have worked so hard to get this platform of bankless up and running. Now we are going to like, kind of, again, like carry the banner, carry the flag. Like this is what we're here to do. And I think this podcast is kind of going to be a, a great place to, to launch that effort off from. Absolutely. So guys, that podcast is getting recorded this week and will come out next Monday. So make sure you're subscribed both to this channel on YouTube and also uh, in your podcast player as well to get that in audio version. David, we still have a number of topics to cover, man. Um, and we, we want to make sure we time box this stuff too. Mm-hmm. So you know what we should do is um, do a lightning round yeah, and try to talk round. about some of these remaining yeah, roll-ups around, excuse me, yeah. And we'll, t- we'll, we'll try to talk about these remaining topics really mm-hmm. quick. I've got a stopwatch here. So I'm gonna okay. try to keep us like to like, you know, two minutes each topic. Cool. And let's try to knock these out. Um, so, so the first is this. It, I don't know about you, David, but it seems to me that uh, crypto is not holding up as an uncorrelated asset class these days. <laughs> it is mirroring everything that's going on in the S&P. What is up with that, man? Dude, and it's not just the S&P, right? So like, I think the, if you take the DXY, which is the dollar index uh, chart and you flip it, it like lines up so perfectly with the ETH chart, right? And so what this means is that like, when the dollar becomes more valuable, Ether becomes less valuable, right? And Bitcoin is also doing this as well. And which is really frustrating for me who like totally signed up for an uncorrelated asset inside of an uncorrelated industry. And it's just like, uh, it's just not happening. For, so for some reason, you know, there's a perfect storm of, of things happening in the world that's making our industry super correlated with the rest of the world, which is a little bit frustrating. So this is a, uh, a graph of a DeFi perp matched with a NASDAQ. And you can see how kind of the lines just sort of match together. And I think we're seeing a lot of that. So when does it end? I guess is the question. Right now, it seems like... Um, a lot of crypto is sort of responding to what's going on in what we call macro. So what is the Fed doing with respect to printing money? What is um, the dollar doing? Is it going up or down relative to other currencies? What are stocks doing? When does that stop? And when do we finally get our uncorrelated asset, David? 
Yeah, well, at some point we do have to think that like there is going to be correlation when these things mature, right? Like they are going to fit into the rest of the world. And when they fit into the rest of the world, then they're going to be have relationships with the rest of the world. So like at some point, it's inevitable that these, these things become correlated. However, I'm not ready for that yet because like we still have Ethereum 2.0. We still have EIP 1559. We still have staking. And all of these things are things that only Ethereum has, right? And so in the sense that these things are valuable those things should be that should make ether uncorrelated until maturity right like i don't consider ether as an asset mature in the slightest right like that's why i'm bullish like you're you're buying in before it's mature right you get to ride its maturity wave up uh and so i i'm i'm hoping that like the phase zero test night gets up and running and we can start staking our ether and some of these like novel investment theses start to become really really salient and that starts to decorrelate us once again all right, man, that's all the time we have for that. We're just for two minutes, so we're doing okay on that. So let's talk about another thing that happened last week, and this is the uh, KuCoin mm. hack. So KuCoin is an exchange. I've never used it myself, but it is a fairly large exchange, and over $150 million was stolen from their hot wallets. A lot of these wallets uh, contain Bitcoin, Ether, and also ERC-20s. Um, I felt like, wrote a post on this, on Monday, so just yesterday, I felt like this served as almost an acid, an right. acid test on how decentralized these DeFi protocols were. Because what we saw is a lot of the tokens and a lot of the assets and even some of the non-Ethereum blockchains, just they, they press their freeze button right. on the, the tokens. Um, and you know, some people see that as a pro, but I think that is definitely, um, you know, it fits into a protocol sync thesis on if an asset is not in a protocol is not decentralized, right? It's, it's not going to settle to the bottom. If an asset can be frozen or there's governance or there's a small party that can affect its credible neutrality, it's not going to be a good base layer for all sorts of things for, you know, property for the world or for money. What's your take on this, David? Yeah, no, I think you got it exactly right. And really what this whole event was, was like a big, uh, a big test as to whether or not there's decentralization theater going on, right? And so, you know, when when the time comes, when when you know something happens that you didn't intend it to, are you able to do something about that, or are you a completely trustless, decentralized, permissionless platform, right? And so, and and there's like a spectrum here, right? And so, like Kane from Synthetics wrote a blog post about or a, a tweet thread about you know how he doesn't think it's worth his time to like put in a proposal to freeze funds, right? And so, like what that's suggesting is that like Synthetics may have the ability by vote to freeze funds but he doesn't think it's worth it and he also doesn't think that it's like a, it's a net positive in the long run other protocols just went straight for it including ampleforth right like ampleforth just said like press the freeze button right like top which is kind of odd from a money that's trying to be fully decentralized and fully governed unless they just decided they decided to govern as and in, instead of non-governing, which is kind of in their social contract. So that's kind of weird. Uh, and then there's also Bitcoin and Ether, like you said, that just no one has that ability whatsoever. So it's not even a conversation, right? It's a very, very interesting spectrum going on here. Yeah. So David, I, I don't know what podcast we talked about this. It might've been our Protocol Sync uh, podcast. It might've been another State of the Nation, but we we've kind talked of speculated. About we've we probably talked about it a lot, but we've kind of speculated, okay, what would happen if a criminal stole money? What money would the criminal... Uh, prefer 
Mm -hmm. uh, chances are that the money the criminal prefers is the most credibly neutral money, the, the most decentralized, the most unstoppable money on the planet. It was so fascinating to watch actually the, the liquidation process. Mm -hmm. So we could, we could view all this in real time on chain. Mm -hmm. And um, the, the address of the hacker had all of these funds, including uh, Ampleforth, which was frozen, and SNX. Uh, and other assets that, that couldn't be frozen. And what does the hacker do? Immediately tries to sell them for ETH on right. Uniswap. Right. Tries to go to the most credibly neutral money that is available uh, to him. Mm -hmm. So I, I do think that is um, maybe, <laughs> I guess, some more credence, uh, some more evidence of the protocol sync thesis As if we true. need it anymore. <laughs> yeah, and I think, you know, there's, there's obviously... Um, there's obviously the counter to that. Uh, I think that, that, that people would say, so you're saying Ryan and David, that the only people who need crypto money or these base monies are criminals, right? Well, n not quite. I mean, dissidents fighting for their freedom mm -hmm. also need credibly neutral money that their mm -hmm. government can't stop. So mm -hmm. do companies that compete with one another. If one right. company can influence the monetary policy or freeze a transaction, that's not good. Right. So do countries at war. So again, we need a credibly neutral monetary system and property rights system to essentially solve what we were talking about earlier, which is these Moloch, these coordination problems uh, across humanity. So it's not just for criminals, but it is, uh, I think, in, enlightening when you see an actual acid test of how decentralized these uh, monetary systems are and these assets are, and, and you see what criminals uh, effectively do with the assets. So super interesting. I think another take to have here is that, you know, once again, this is another centralized exchange that got hacked, right? And so yeah. <laughs> you know, when, yeah. when we think about like a DeFi protocols with rug pulls that steal $10 million, $20 million, or there's a contract bug and people lose a few million dollars, like this was $150 million and it, and it could have been even more, like they're, they're still up in the air as to how large this was, right? And so anytime a centralized exchange gets hacked, compare the size of that hack to like the most recent DeFi bug exploit, right? Because like every single time the centralized exchange hack is orders of magnitude bigger, right? And exchange hacks don't happen on DeFi. Like they don't happen on Uniswap. And so like, it's a good reminder as to like why we want to live a bankless life is because if a bankless life is at all, at all possible, it's because they're, the systems that we're using to, do, to live this life are unhackable, right? Absolutely. Now, let's talk about our next topic because uh, everything you just said doesn't mean there is not risk in going bankless. We emphasize this just about every time we, we talk about something or have a podcast or have some sort of conversation. There have been a number of a token debacles, let's call them, that have uh, started to happen in DeFi. So one was few, right. um, which we could talk about. Another is the EMN token, MN token, which, mm -hmm. which happened just yesterday. Right. Um, it was a token that a whole bunch of people poured into. There was a, a, a flash loan hack and apparently money was stolen. I don't know, $8 million, something to that effect. Right. It's getting to the, the point where I can't keep up with it. Mm -hmm. um, it it and, came and into existence can. and then was hacked in the same day. Like how exactly. Like, it was like what? Like this already happened? Well, I, and that's also the story of Hugh. Uh, of right. Hugh, excuse me. It was mm -hmm. just like an hour, an hour and a half long um, mm -hmm. sort of episode, and uh, we're still talking about it. So, what's your takeaway from these token debacles, like few, like few, and like EMN, David? 
Right. Yeah. So, so with few, I think, you know, so few, I think happened right after our last date of the nation, Ryan, where we were talking with Jordan Lyle, who created the meme token. And what meme token was, was like some people just minted a token called meme and then they figured out something to do with it after the fact. Right. And so like, I think what happened with few was like kind of that same thing where like, let's make a few token and then we can figure out what to do with it after the fact. And so what a bunch of people did is they got a bunch of other people into a telegram to help bootstrap this thing, right? And so they wanted, they naturally wanted to pick the people that had like influence and, and had reach. And so they brought in people with a following into this telegram say, hey, we're gonna, we're gonna top down this token. We're gonna call it few. It's gonna start off as a meme and then we're gonna figure out how to bootstrap it from zero to one, right? And so a bunch of people just randomly got pulled in. Some people maybe were thinking like, yeah, I'm totally going to get rich off of this by dumping it because I'm part of the, the you know, the privileged few in the, the Telegram group. Other people just got added into Telegram without even knowing what the hell is going on. So there's, there's a massive spectrum of people who are involved in these, in these things. And then there was the, that person that took a screenshot of like, you know, people saying like, yeah, we're going to, we're going to, uh, you know, dump this token and then others and, and Anthony Sazzano got caught up in this and he said it was a joke. And me as a, as somebody who, you know, talks to Anthony a lot, it, it was a fucking joke. Like Anthony was joking. <laughs> Maybe it was an irresponsible joke, but like he doesn't deserve to have gotten the backlash that he got in the slightest. But I think the through line here is like, things are hairy. And especially on Twitter, especially when there's personalities and reputation at stake, because like when you even mention a, tw a, a token itself, it's almost an endorsement, especially if you have like 20, 30, 40,000 followers. Right. And so I'll, I'll let you hop in there. Yeah, I mean, it, it's funny because it, that came off our conversation with with Jordan, right, where we we're talking about meme and the whole meme for meme is don't buy meme. Right. And so like even when if you say, hey, this token has no value and um, like, don't buy this token, it becomes like an endorsement in this weird you know, DeFi subculture that we're right. in. Yeah. But, like, so what's, what's striking to me is the whole few thing blew up and there was um, like mass outrage. And I think part of it is, you know, part of it is justified, right? And I think there are individuals, we should be vigilant, I, I would right. say. I think there are individuals who would prey upon DeFi in the space. Um, but what happened yesterday, I think in, in like, did we learn anything? Mm -hmm. I don't know because um, yesterday a token comes out, a, a few um, a DeFi Twitter accounts start talking about EMN. Mm -hmm. um, Andre's name from YFI gets associated with it mm -hmm. and people don't even know what they're buying right. and they suddenly no pile into this token. There's no like, website. There's nothing. Don't even know We're what just, the hell it does. Yeah, people are, it's like the, the token mempool. This is like the right. YFI mempool where people are trying to front run the next mm -hmm. thing that Andre's built. Mm -hmm. They have no idea what's going on here, what they're purchasing, and they pile into it. Um, right. What happens within the hour or something, mm -hmm. within like two hours, uh, it gets drained. Mm -hmm. um, I guess the, the takeaway here, guys, is uh, at, least, at least for me, if you choose to ape in to follow into a token without knowing what the heck it is or why it's valuable mm -hmm. and you lose money, mm -hmm. you know who you have to blame, right? You got to blame yourself, right? Right. Like, um, I, I understand that, uh, influencers and builders and creators also play a role. I'm not downplaying mm -hmm. that at all. Right. They totally mm -hmm. do hundred percent, but you as somebody who's on the bankless journey mm -hmm. also play a role, right? If right. you're just chasing the next big thing and you're going where, you know, your greed tells you, that's not a good way 
to right. build long-term wealth in this space. But if you do it, only do it with a portion of your funds right. and don't be surprised when right. this sort of thing happens, right? right? So um, like we have to, as people on the journey, take some personal responsibility for mm -hmm. the things that we are invested in. I mean, people who bought EMN token, nobody pushed the button on their ledger. They Other did it. Them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Right. So, and um, <laughs> I don't know, it's just, so, so there is, I guess there's, there's an interplay here. There's definitely an ecosystem of builders and, you know, people who um, uh, are influencers and there's a ton of people who need to take some responsibility here, but you mm -hmm. individually take responsibility yeah. for what you're doing, what you're buying as well, and make right. sure you know why you're buying it before you do it you are always the final backstop to like your bags, right? Like you are the reason why your bags are what they are, right? And also at the end of the day, like if you've been listening to the Bankless podcast and if you've been listening to me and Ryan articulate why Ether is valuable, like you already have so much more information than anyone else in the world about, about the value proposition of Ether. Like it's a triple point asset, staking is coming, EIP 1559. Like, and so if you understand these things, you are in like the 0.01% of the world that understands these things. You already have such a strong lead over the rest of the world with just owning Ether that like you should be satisfied just about that, right? And so like, if you're trying to like shoot for the moon, like, and get to the moon like this year, and then you get rug pulled, like that's kind of on you because you have ether that is like super safe and also the ROI is so insane to begin with, right? And so at the end of the day, you, you kind of need to compare everything to ether. Like what is the, what is the rug pull chance and like the, the shitty uninformed influencer risk to like aping into some random token that's some random three letters versus the value of ether, right? Like at the end of the day, we should be satisfied with the value proposition of ether. That's, that, that's something I think um, Ethereum community can continue to learn from Bitcoiners, right? Which mm -hmm. is this time preference idea mm -hmm. of like, not necessarily uh, chasing the short-term gains all the, all the time. And I, I felt like we had that in the Ethereum community, even at the first half of, uh, 2020 mm -hmm. and certainly in 2018 and, and 2019 but with the yield farming mania of the past three months it's starting to fade a little right. bit as it did yep. in 2017 where everything went manic and and mm -hmm. bananas so um yeah just keep these principles in mind this is a marathon it's not a sprint um if you're going to try to get rich overnight, just do it with a small portion of your funds mm -hmm. that you can lose. Don't do it with, with um, you know, like your main stack that, uh, that you're trying to hold for the long term. Um, David, we, I think we went over time on that one, but let's talk about one last thing. And this is the, uh, how do you pronounce it? The new Ethereum 2 testnet that's just Spinalda? Spinalda? Spinalda, I Spinalda. Think. okay, perfect. It sounds like a, yes. sounds like a fake, fake sweetener. All right. <laughs> All right. So it's like Splenda, Spinalda. Okay. All right. So this test net is, mm -hmm. it's, it's the last test net net for ETH2 before the actual phase zero. Is that right? Yeah. It is the, the final dress rehearsal. So like full costumes, you know, for, put, I'll put, put the, the, the full effort into it. It is the last thing. Right. And so that went live uh, this morning. Uh, apparently there's a little bit of a hiccup. I think I'm going to, I think it was because there wasn't enough participation. There weren't enough part people participating, uh, which kind of makes sense because it was started at four in the morning, my time uh, Pacific time. So that's pretty early for, for America. 
and so I'm going to chalk it up to, to that as why it didn't go start off so smoothly, but it is, it is started. It has started. Uh, and like it's a three day long test net, which is the last testing phase of the deposit contract, basically all the actions to spin up phase zero. And once these three day, this three day test net is over, like the only thing that needs to happen between now and the start of phase zero is nothing, right? Like everything <laughs> needs to just continue according to plan. Like nothing needs to change. So this, if this test net is successful and then nothing else happens, we got, we have phase zero, like lock it in. Very cool. Very cool. Very exciting. I think a lot of people are going to be surprised. There's been a longstanding meme that ETH2 is never going to happen. Uh, when it does start to happen, I wonder what the critics will say. Um, I'm, I'm certainly going to uh, be, be excited for that. And I think the entire Ethereum community is going to be excited to see this progress. So we could be months, uh, maybe even weeks, weeks. away from weeks. the launch of ETH2. Um, weeks, not months. <laughs> that's it. Uh, David, I think that's all we have time for, man. So this has been a fantastic roll-up round, my friend. Um, yeah. So, all right, guys, this has been State of the Nation number 16. Thank you for joining us. As always, risks and disclaimers. Everything we talk about, ETH is risky. Uh, the crypto is risky in general. So is DeFi. You could lose what you put in. But we are headed west. This is the frontier. It's not for everyone, but we are glad you are with us on the journey. Thanks a lot.